0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Quarters security condition three. GQ security three, sir. General quarters three intruder alert. GQ three intruder alert. Good evening and welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon. I'm your host and cruise director, Madam Perry. Well, you can call me Jennifer Perry, and I am happy to be here again tonight. We have had so many good, fun shows. Lately, some uh, fascinating guests, as usual, and that's mainly because so many of you listen, and you share it, and you subscribe, and you leave reviews and um, download, and that helps me to continue to get great guests like I've got tonight, and like we've had, um, we have, we haven't had any 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 unpleasant guests. Everyone's a good guest. Um, Monday night was a, a bit more serious show than we used to. We had, I had my friend. Um, He's a two-time Emmy-winning investigative journalist, formerly with CNN and HLN. uh, He currently works with uh, Nancy Grace and her crime online on SiriusXM. Art Harris, also a suspense author, school teacher, and former weapons control expert with the Navy, Brett R. Wright. We love. And Brett brought – we were talking about gun violence in American schools. Is there a solution? And Brett brought his friend – Chelsea Sibolic, who was a survivor of the Aurora theater shooting, and uh, just pretty much changed the um, the way we had planned to go with the show, but I'll tell you what, she was just, she was marvelous, and so if you you can still go back and listen to that show, it's great. Last night, we had comedian Ricky Glor on there, and he's talking about his stand-up comedy, as well as some musicals he's written, like placing uh, the story of um, anyone who's listen to Fleetwood Mac for years and knows the uh, backstories and all the the dramas and soap operas of that band and so a few years back he um, in a series of ongoing musicals he's written he created this one called Fleetwood Macbeth and uh, yeah did the I guess they call it a mashup between Macbeth and uh, that story and that was hilarious and uh, so but tonight um, this is a book in fact some of the people that I've some of the people that have read that this is gonna be my guest that I've already been reading uh, this author's book. Uh, the book is called Hillbilly Hellraisers. In it, the author searches for the roots of rural defiance in Ozark in the Ozarks and discovers how it changed over time. Uh, he focuses on experiences and attitudes of rural people themselves as they interacted with government, from the late 19th century through the 20th century and uncovers reasons why local disputes and uneven access to government power fostered markedly different reactions by hill people as time went by uh, resistance in the earlier period sprang from upland small farmers conflict to, with capitalist elites who held local levers of federal power but as industry in agribusiness displaced family farms after World War II a conservative cohort of town business elites, local political officials, Midwestern immigrants rose from the region's new low-wage, union-averse economy. But as the author argues, this modern anti-government conservatism has a little resemblance to the backcountry population of an earlier age, but much in common with movement elsewhere. And it's just like with um, the book we last week we had, Food historian Linda Civitello talking about the baking powder wars and all the, uh, uh, the the rough story behind the beginning of the baking powder industry and the, the uh, oh gosh the the backbiting the spying the uh, bribing the lying even the Klan marches um, this is really nothing new under the sun so I would like to introduce my guest tonight Jay Blake Perkins author. And historian, hi, welcome to Madam Perry's salon. Hello. Hi, glad you could be here.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, thanks for having me. i
0: looking forward to it.
1: I am delighted. I'm delighted, and it's getting a, a lot of attention, so I know we have a lot of listeners tonight. Um, actually, the full title of the book, is I to call it Hell, Hillbilly Hellraisers, but it's Hillbilly Hellraisers, um, and federal power and populist defiance in the ozarks. Yeah. And reading this book, reading your book and I've got to say I'm not at the end yet because there are so many stories and so many people in here that I end up going That's back it. and reading some things over just to make sure I've got the family straight and the story straight in this and to keep on going. As, I understand. Abs- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do? Okay, good. Thank <laughs> I was just like, you didn't finish my book. Well, I'm trying, but I have to keep going back. And then, okay, let me get these people straight. Because it's like, uh, it is. It's like it's like this would be a great movie. And you know, as I keep telling people, some things. The more you know, the more we learn about stuff going on. You know, nowadays, sure, there's there's uh, pervasive, ubiquitous media, and everybody's got a, a phone, got a camera. Excuse me, a camera with a phone attached, and. Uh, there, anything can be around the world in seconds. But and these things sound new and and uh provocative things going on in politics and in the world, but if you go back and read history, there's not a whole lot new under the sun, is there? Yeah,
0: no, no, that's right. And and uh yeah, you know, uh you mentioned the the names and the families and so forth and uh yeah, you know, that's uh can be at times a little cumbersome I guess to, to keep up with all that. But one of my goals in writing this was to really Instead of just speaking in in generalizations, was to really uh, try to put a face on these people, you know, and and uh, really as best as I could, kind of get in their minds and and figure out who these people are. So, uh, so yeah, you, you get into some details in in, in the book for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's not cumbersome. You really do bring these things to life, and the people and their stories. Oh, well, thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just it's interesting. So you don't want to lose. I don't want to lose anything on anybody anywhere, but the, uh, the the families and the individual stories, and uh, I guess we're going to get into all that. But your book begins, I believe, in the late nineteenth century. Right. Yeah. And so, first of all, what what why did you want to research and write about this?
0: Well, um, I'm from the region is one of the main reasons, uh, I grew up in a, and still live in a very rural, uh, pretty remote area. And so, uh, come from, uh, many generations of, of, kind of rural, rural family, rural ancestors and so forth. So I've always been, of course, uh, fascinated with my roots and so forth. And, uh, and, uh, just, uh, wanted to understand, uh, you know, um, my communities and, and, uh, my neighbors and, and and myself i guess better and and so um so yeah i was uh uh just 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 interested in in uh in, in a lot of the, the stereotypes about um you know people uh from from uh, my home area and, and uh, the way that other people look at or have often looked at at uh, rural people and so uh anyway yeah i just I've just had long had an interest i can't really uh, tell you a, a, a specific thing that has, uh, you know, turned me on to this, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've long had an interest.
1: When, um, yeah, so some of the families that you were writing about, uh, you were telling stories, and especially when it gets into the thing about the moonshine stills and, and, the, um, yeah. and the federal agents, who sounded like... You know a lot of history we hear about you know you know there's always the the caricature of the hillbillies and the stories like that, and then again, though, when you when I read some of these stories about some of the federal raids on the moonshine stills, it made it sound like some of the cops or the feds were were really more the caricatures sort of wanting to go in gangbusters against somebody still not really the things playing down yeah. am i am I reading this wrong or
0: yeah no no I, you know and, I, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to start there uh and, and I mean you can't really talk about hill people it seems uh thinking about stereotypes uh without thinking about moonshiners right and I mean that's one mm-hmm. of the, that's that's one of the one of the big ones uh that uh, has long fascinated people and and uh but uh yeah so so uh and obviously helped to kind of create this image that we have of rural people is just kind of being kind of naturally opposed to, you know, federal power or, uh, the damn government, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so, uh, that's where a lot of those I think stereotypes were really ingrained in the American mind about rural people. And so I wanted to dig into that. I wanted to see, you know, well, what's, re- what's really going on there. Um, and so what I often find these, these, uh, these moonshiners are are rather sophisticated individuals um mm-hmm. they're entrepreneurs they are uh they're small farmers who are uh, are rather innovative and and so I talk a lot about uh, in the book and uh how uh, these these people are are always searching to try to um you know get, to get ahead i mean they're 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 small businessmen in many ways uh and uh so these anti moonshine laws and and uh, and the revenues and the U.S. marshals and so mm-hmm. forth that are constantly trying to crack down on them. Are uh, you know they're getting in the way and they're they're really obstructing their their uh, hope uh, and their and their their, their quest for, for for what really their American dream. You know, in so many ways. And, and well, these, yeah, that's a
1: good.
0: Um, point. Yeah, go ahead. Let's
1: go ahead. Well, I was going to say when you said oh, their no, American just, dream. I, there was yeah. a point where it was certainly, I mean, these are people that were very family oriented. Families worked together in the farm and the fam- everything was done for, you sure. know, the families really stuck together. And I think that's the part where you said that, you know, they could make a whole lot more money with moonshine to support their families than they could just selling the corn.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So again, they're, they're, uh uh trying to kind of think ahead and, and, and trying to come up with innovative ways to continue to, uh, prosper as as family farmers, and this is a difficult time for for small farmers to be able to do that. But, um, but in thinking about the, uh, you know, who who are the revenuers and the uh, and the the U.S. marshals and so forth that are always giving them hell, uh, Mm -hmm. what one of the interesting things I found here was that these aren't, you know, these aren't really outsiders. These aren't people coming in from Washington D.C. or uh, I mean, th- these are local elites who uh, uh, are, you know, uh, wanting to clean up the the image, you know, in their in their town, you know, in their, in their towns and their in their uh, local communities and so forth. They want to get rid of these illicit distillers and moonshiners who are giving the giving the area a bad rap right, in the press and so on, and and uh, you know they're wanting to. Um, modernize the economy they want they want to bring an industry they want to they want to bring a more centralized uh agriculture and, and things like that so you know this is not really that oftentimes the in, in the in kind of the the myths of the moonshiners and the feds it's kind of a well insider versus outsider kind of story but that's not really what's going on there um oftentimes they knew i mean they knew each other they knew who they were mm-hmm. uh, they knew what their backgrounds were uh many of these small farmers, these moonshiners, knew that the, the U.S. Marshals and the revenues well, those are the rich guys that live on, you know, uh, over in the county seat town or whatever. And, and uh, you know, they, they know uh, uh, that they see things differently than they do and often resent it.
1: Yes, exactly. And you're right. There, there wasn't this. One thing that was um... – that that I discovered that I wasn't aware of, that, yeah, it wasn't like it was some far-off people. Was, these were the people, you know, in in their state, their home, and, yeah, they knew them. So tell me, where did we start, where do we begin for, uh, when somebody starts reading Hillbilly Hill Rages, and we start, like, as I said, in the late 19th century, where do we start with the um, situation, people are are. Moving to Arkansas to the Ozarks, trying to get some land, starting to plant. Where, where did this? Where did the community build from? Okay,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, a period in the in the Ozarks. I mean, we've got uh, uh, a lot of people moving from uh, uh, other rural areas back east. From a lot of them from Appalachia, the Appalachian Mountains, and so they moved further west into the Ozarks, which is of course very similar uh, to to the region that they came from, and they're uh, again, they're 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 buying and, and settling down. They're using federal uh, homesteading laws and things like that uh, uh, to acquire small family farms. And uh, you know, they're they're again, like I said before, they're kind of hoping to. That's that's kind of the American dream in those days uh, to live life and to prosper, and then and then be able to uh, kind of pass it on to the next generation and and, and all of that. But this is uh, also the period late 1800s, early 1900s. That, Mark Twain, Mark Twain called the Gilded Age. Right, so
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, this is the this is the era of monopolies and and uh, uh, kind of kind of hyper industrialization and and uh, and a more kind of, you see patterns of a more centralized economy and we're also seeing that in agriculture as well. So farmers, uh, are wealthier, more prosperous farmers, larger landowners uh, are often uh, beginning to kind of consolidate their Control over markets and, and uh, you know things like that, and so it's becoming more difficult for uh, these small family farmers to really compete even at that point. And that's that process uh, of kind of crowding them out is only going to continue uh, in the as we move on into the 20th century and um, and beyond. So uh, so yeah, it's 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 a tough time, and so that's what's that's what's really uh, beginning to get. Many of these small farmers to think about the federal government and what what role, if any, it should be playing, and and so on.
1: I want to say right now, if you're listening live and this is Wednesday, February 28th, you're listening live to us tonight. I'm talking to Jay Blake Perkins about his book Hillbilly Hellraisers, and you want to call in and talk to Blake or ask a question or comment. The number is six four six. Seven one, six nine nine two two, that's six four six, seven one six, nine nine two, two, and we'll be happy to take a call, and so yeah, so let's get back then to I think it's when we start to see, um for me, what seemed to be the beginning of their distrust of government, the people there, is when somebody comes forward like I'm you know I'm gonna be. I'm not one of them. I'm one of you, and I'm here for you. And I believe that was Davis. Am I right? I'm right. Oh, Jeff
0: okay, Davis? yeah, uh, politician Jeff Davis, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. Uh, makes them think that he's their man. He's there for him. I'm not one of them. Yeah. But then, yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, Jeff Davis. Yeah, Jeff Davis is a uh, uh, extremely popular politician who. A very interesting character, um, and 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 turns out to be one of the most despicable uh, character <laughs> uh, political <laughs> characters. Uh, but uh, but it's interesting though he he really builds a, his political career uh, on this populist ethic, as I refer to it in the book. It's so uh, I guess let me back up just a little bit. Um, you know these aren't uh, one of the one of the main points I, I'm I'm making the book, and, and that, that these many stories that I tell uh, bear out is that these rural people aren't automatically opposed to the federal government. In fact, far from it. I mean, many of them are calling for some of the most dramatic expansions of, of federal power ever. I mean, they're calling for increased federal regulations and and even redistribution of wealth and things like that. Um, I mean, they're calling for the, the federal government to take over the railroad industry um, they are some of the strongest advocates for the progressive income tax so uh taxing the rich and corporations and uh so anyway they're they're um you know you know in that sense then they're not they're certainly not just opposed to to government per se exactly. and so uh jeff davis comes along and um and kind of to make that point davis uh becomes so popular because before he became governor uh and he was elected in 1900 uh, by the most lopsided margins in Arkansas political history because the people loved him so much but before that he had been a, uh, the state attorney general and he made a name by uh, for himself by uh basically uh suing every insurance company doing business in Arkansas and so he kind of became this uh this kind of folk hero for the working man you know against the uh the corporate insurance companies and so forth, and you know they they fell in love with him, and and uh, because he was speaking to many of the issues that they were uh, concerned about, and but but then uh, later on, once he comes to power, that's kind of the despicable part. He begins to uh, uh, clearly become more concerned about uh, building up and, and maintaining his political coalition, and he starts to become. Uh, uh, I mean he, he becomes one of the most rabid race baiters, you know, in, 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 in all really in all southern political histories, uh uh really really plays the, the race card and, and things like that. But and and, and in fact during go- his his time as governor and later he became US senator before he died in nineteen thirteen, he, he did practically nothing. I mean he he didn't really uh do much in, in terms of uh policy or anything like that to, to help the rural people who uh, you know, who put him in power.
1: And yeah, you're right. He was he was quite race baiter. I mean, the, the speaking with um, I think alongside the president of the United States had to call him down.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because he publicly, uh, Jeff Davis uh, uh, publicly supported or kind of endorsed uh, lynching, and and so uh, even uh, Theodore Roosevelt had to sort of scold him for for that one.
1: But <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he didn't didn't appreciate. But um, but yeah, that's a pretty serious move. When, yeah, when somebody's to scold you right out there in public, and, and it's the president, uh, President Roosevelt. But um, so yeah, so they start off. You know, they they're they're not as anti-government as people think. They're, they're totally different from what the um, the assumptions or um, opinion are. But
0: yeah, and many many of them are socialists. Uh, that, that's Interesting. They're, yeah, they're, in yeah. Fact, Let's talk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, rural the rural socialist movement was was actually quite I quite big go. in uh, in uh, uh, rural Arkansas and, and over in Oklahoma and parts of Texas and uh, Missouri. So, yeah, that's that's uh, interesting. That many listeners may not be familiar with. Uh, my things change, don't they?
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. And so, what? So, tell me what you mean when you talk about. Populist ethic, and and its relation to rules—what what you call smallholders or family farmers.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, in this populist ethic is this really this view that uh, the federal government can and should play a role in, especially in in an the, in the, in the economy, and and, and so they they are uh, calling for economic democracy. They they, they resent uh, uh, the fact that so much of the economy is being centralized in the hands of of uh, of a few and i mean there's 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 so many sim- similarities and patterns to our own times uh, in terms of the us economy at the time and and there uh you know so so this populist ethic essentially calls for the federal government to step in and regulate and, and redistribute uh, resources to kind of level the playing field uh uh, so that uh, smallholders, holders, uh, working class people, uh, have a chance, right? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the economy is not all gobbled up by uh, a bunch of rich and powerful elites and corporations and so forth. So it's a rather and, pro-government oh, uh, mentality. Yeah, you
1: know. that's it. That it's, it's, it is. it is pro. So, but then when the thing comes in about uh, when you get into the book, the part about you know how you really make us rethink. All the assumptions and all the things that we heard about, are the caricatures about the moonshiners in the Ozarks and that they were anti government and that it was a very don't tread on me type of culture. You know, those things that just turned into caricatures, actually, but that's not exactly how it was.
0: Yeah, that's right. And another one that uh, really surprised me I had never um, uh, heard of this before I began researching it and, and reading about it, but. Um, During World War I, many of these rural people were strongly anti war um, and and, and anti military, even, and and resisted the draft. And and so uh, I just found that fascinating, and some of the stories there. uh, These rural people, um, you know, we don't don't usually think of, uh, back to your point, these caricatures, we don't usually think of rural people as being. Anti-war folks, you know, uh, uh, but uh, but they were, I mean, this, this was, uh,
1: Yeah, that was another another revelation, and in, in your book is that the yeah the resistance to the war and just not, uh, and to the whole the whole philosophy. I mean, the whole idea behind it. They just didn't agree with it. Some I think weren't. Some were on religious, but some were on. Um. Ethical and other reasons.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there are two things, and they, and they often combine. Uh, all, uh, several of them are um, um, motivated by their religious objections, and so there again we get another caricature of the, of the kind of, a, of the uh, uh, naturally conservative, evangelical and fundamentalist Christians. Uh, but m- but many of these um, many of these uh, uh, you know these these uh, rural churches um, were strongly opposed to to war, and uh, in, in fact leaned leaned in, in kind of in a pacifist uh, direction, many of them were pacifists, and and so um, yeah, they, they saw this as uh, going against uh, uh, you know what they believe were the teachings of, of Jesus Christ, and and you uh, know and, and and so yeah, they. they Many of them uh, resisted for those reasons, and oftentimes the uh, political and the, and the religious intermixed i mean some of these some of these uh uh, uh some of the some of the ma- major community political leaders were oftentimes these country preachers uh as well and so you know they tended to in those days rail more against the greed and and uh you know the profiteers and and uh you know the, the sins of greed and materialism and things like that. Rather than today, it's more uh, about uh, you know how the country's um, left God behind and, and, mm-hmm. and being subverted subverted by liberals and things like that. So there's a major change that goes that happens later on that I kind of talk a little bit about later toward the end of the book, but but not so so much in the, in the first in the late 19th and early early 20th centuries. It's like some uh, of them you, you might you might you might think I mean were rather progressive in, in, in their outlooks.
1: Who are the Brothers of Freedom?
0: Yeah, so that's an, that's one of many organizations, uh, basically a union, um, a farmers' union uh, that developed in the 1880s. And again, that that's uh, there, there were there were several others in the region that so these small farmers as they began to face these struggles and they begin to see hey well my neighbors kind of got the same issues uh so why don't we start getting together and talking about these things and come up with some ideas and uh, and basically yeah essentially kind of a, a rural farmer version of what, what what we might think of as of a of a, of a labor union of, of sorts mm-hmm. And so yeah the brothers of freedom um eventually morphed into the the broader farmers alliance which uh, eventually became even a third-party movement, and that it was quite successful uh, for a while in the uh, 1890s. Um, but again, they're 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 calling for uh, increased government regulations in the economy, and and uh, uh, they're 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 railing against uh, the rich and powerful and the, and these greedy corporations that they argue have hijacked the American economy, and and uh, they're Wanting, you know look look out for the little man uh, kind of thing
1: when uh tell us about the um the situation because i i can't really explain it as well as you can of course uh the situation that began with the usda was going to had a, a campaign to eradicate ticks yeah, yeah and that, all that that, that ensued
0: of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah ticks yeah that's uh i get a lot of questions about ticks uh Apparently, I'm the tick expert now. I don't, I don't know, but uh, yeah, this was a uh, this was a federal, uh, a USDA, so the United States Department of Agriculture program uh, that started in the early 1900s, and um, the uh, the 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 goal was to uh, eliminate Texas fever, you know, a tick borne illness that was uh, killing some cattle. Especially purebred cattle,s you know these these purebred, these top grade, stock breeds and so forth. That uh, a lot of wealthier uh, farmers were beginning to, uh, to 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 have. And so the yeah, the USDA um, starts this program. the The idea is to get rid of all these ticks because these ticks are carrying tick fever, right? And and they're hurting the cattle industry. They're hurting farmers. Is the idea. Um, what What they didn't realize, or maybe didn't care about, was that smaller farmers um, who are going to bear heavy costs uh, for complying with this program really aren't experiencing the same kinds of loss that the wealthier farmers are. They don't have these top breed cattle; they've just kind of got the old native uh, what they what they often called scrub breeds, so and they've, mm-hmm. over the years, developed immunity to the, to the Texas fever. And so they're not – these smaller farmers aren't really dealing with these kinds of issues. It's not a problem for them. And yet uh, the uh, USDA, and, and, and it's working through state and local governments and sheriff's departments and so forth, are forcing this on all farmers. Basically, the argument is, well, this will raise all boats. right? It'll, it'll help everybody. Uh, and mm-hmm. yet uh they enact they enact flat taxes uh to to pay for the at least the state and local portions of the federal program and, and so that 's going to uh, – regressive taxes that are gonna fall on the shoulders of these smaller farmers more and also these smaller farmers are still in those days uh th- their cattle are roaming around on on the open range so unlike today where cattle are in in fenced pastures right Right. Uh, in those days the cattle the cattle and the hogs and everything else just kind of ran around where they wanted to in the woods and on on neighbor's property wherever and uh, for so farmers that were growing crops corn or whatever would fence in their uh, grow crops and so anyway uh, because of that i mean the program required these farmers to go and have their cattle dipped in this arsenic solution to get rid of the ticks. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they built these concrete dipping vats to run them through, and and then they run the next one through and so forth. They had to do that once every two weeks until the inspector, the federal inspector, said, okay, the ticks are gone, and you don't have to do this anymore. And so for these small farmers, I mean, this required so much time and, and money and effort to try to round up their cattle and get them to the dipping vats. And so anyway, there was an immense resistance to that. They began blowing these uh, vats up, the concrete vats with dynamite. And, uh, and in one case, I, I talk about a, a, an assassination. They assassinated uh, one of these federal inspectors over the whole ordeal. So, uh, yeah, kind of an interesting, interesting affair. But but once again, what's they're not resisting the federal government. Right. They're resisting these local, these local elites who are imposing this program on them, in which they don't really benefit from, and they're having to pay the cost for it. and And it's really a, a program, as they see it, for, uh, for these local elites and their interests. And so uh, they're using federal authority to get what they want and force it on everybody else, kind of thing.
1: And so they're being forced to this, and they don't they don't really even need it, but they're being forced to it, and it's taking time and it's costing right. them. Sure, In a yeah. lot of ways. So there's a there's a it's it's another example of the cla- the class conflicts that they had and that just right. builds and builds that resentment that leads to resistance, right. isn't it?
0: Yes, and, and many of those who resisted uh resisted the this tick program the, the strongest were once again rural socialists. So uh yeah, mm-hmm. that just again, illustrates they're not inherently anti government. In fact they're very mm-hmm. pro government, but but they uh you know, they resent the inequality there, in, the, in these local business elites, these big wealthier farmers, uh, using federal authority to uh, put this put this uh, burdensome program on the shoulders of the of the little man. You know, the working class man. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but the man's keeping them down. It's what it is. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like no matter how hard they struggle to get ahead, and and work hard, and 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 build something to care for their families and something's leave for their children. It's like, the, it's like the the elite groups, they're just keep trying to, it's like they're almost trying to find ways just to keep them down. Yeah. And so, yeah, that would definitely build resistance, resentment, I would think, and resistance. Um, if you're listening live, I'm talking to Jay Blake Perkins uh, about his book, Hillbilly Hellraisers, Federal Power and Populist Defiance in the Ozark. And if you want to call in the number 646 716 Nine we let's go on to things like um uh, their attitude the rural Ozarkers attitude toward the New Deal, uh reform, the things with had to do with and I think there's um the situation that built with the US Army Corps of Engineers and the the lakes, hydroelectric dams. Yeah. Take us there if you would.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, um again, back to this theme about you know this this caricature, this stereotype of these rural people being naturally opposed to government, or this kind of "don't tread on me" kind of culture. Uh, these people were uh, jumping for joy uh, for the New Deal. I mean, uh, for Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Even in some Republican districts that have been Republican strongholds since the Civil War, many of them switched uh, to, to parties to vote for, for for Democrat here and vote for the Liberal uh Franklin Delano Roosevelt and uh, you know getting his New Deal supporters and these this New Deal, New Deal programs that uh promise to um reform the economy, right? And 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 mm-hmm. to uh, and to, and to help the working man and so forth. So they're really excited about it and uh and and, and uh very supportive of all of that. And uh so uh but what what we see also despite the what I think were generally um, good intentions of of these New Deal reformers and despite the the help that they they did bring to many of these very struggling, especially during the Depression, these struggling rural farm families and working, working families they often found that many of these New Deal programs, as in the past were funneled through kind of the local establishment local political elites local business elites uh, the local chamber of commerce uh you know and so uh, oftentimes by the time the programs landed on the ground many of these local elites had kind of uh taken them and steered them the the way they wanted them to go and so we began to see uh many rural people complaining about well i thought this program was going to be help, was going to help people like us but actually mm-hmm. it's it's just helping it's just helping the the big guy you know the big farmers and the and the uh, uh, cultural processing companies and, and things like that. And so uh, they, they began to feel the uneven effects of all of that. And and one of the biggest legacies in the Ozarks of the, the New Deal era, uh, they were, uh, well, the first, the first one was actually built in the 1940s, but um, legislation passed in the late 30s, was the creation of these hydroelectric dams and the lakes mm-hmm. that they created to do that. So um many of the uh, ozarks political leaders new deal supporters and so forth uh took this opportunity of an expanded federal government and federal resources the the high taxes on corporations and so forth and the revenue that that enabled them to do this uh also deficit spending things like that but uh they took that uh opportunity to basically try to do what the tennessee valley authority was doing but over in appalachia the tva uh, uh right well we'll do this here Let's do this here, and and the idea is to create these hydroelectric dams, these man-made lakes, and so forth. And that'll bring in industry. Uh, that'll uh, we'll start to have uh, investments coming in, new businesses popping up, jobs created, and, and all of that. And uh, so uh, they they built them, and uh, some new money did move in, but uh, usually the rural people. Uh, Found that to be a, a broken promise. Uh, small farmers uh, didn't really benefit much at all from those. In fact, many many small farmers uh, in the in the immediate area where the lakes were built you know, lost their farms because the government had to have room for for the water, you know, for the lakes. So they were basically booted out, kicked out um, during all of that. So so yeah, the, the promise that, that that these dams and lakes are going to revive or, or basically create a new economy. Many of them are saying in which these small farmers uh, are going to no longer be in poverty. You know, they're going to have good paying jobs and manufacturing mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, it did bring in some manufacturing, but usually that was light manufacturing, uh, non-union, low-wage type of work. And and oftentimes these rural people were just mm-hmm. as poor, if not poorer, than they were before they, they came in.
1: That's <laughs> such a shame. and You can see why, you know what a depressing way to live. It's like every time you, th- you think you're getting somewhere, you're getting ahead. Somebody's got a way that's supposed to work that never does, at least not for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about, or in the book you were talking about um, I remember the, so- the I don't want to say so-called, what was called the war on poverty. And I think this comes to maybe just post, you know, the situation you were just talking about this timeline because it's uh, it was led by local instigated or led by local business, by uh, political elites. Um, what they call the New Ozarks defiance. So tell us a, a little bit more about that. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so what we began to see after World War II is. Um, What I call a really a new Ozarks developing, and I think that's important if we're going to understand. Fast forward to November 2016, um, Mm -hmm. and the massive support in the region for uh, Donald Trump, who I mean, I I just I I just can't uh, I can't can't imagine those old populists of the late 1800s -hmm. and early early 1900s being able to stomach, uh, you know this. Billionaire real estate, real estate ty- tycoon uh, from New York, you know, I mean, but, uh, yeah. so, so, so in other words, in trying to understand, well, how, how have things changed so much? Um, I think we have to understand that that the Ozarks changed dramatically, almost it's almost revolutionary just how uh, the political economy changes in the rural Ozarks uh, after World War Two. So what's going on is we've got uh, again small farmers, uh, promises broken, uh, high hopes, in the New Deal and and, uh, and you know things like that were going to help, uh, they really didn't, they didn't really any at least no no, no long term solutions there, and so these rural people ultimately have really no choice but to but to leave, they can't compete, the agricultural economy has become more centralized than ever before, agribusinesses dominate farming now. And so there's really no room left for the small family farmer, right? The people who do their own labor and, and 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 you know maybe have a have a uh, 50 acre farm that they you know really make a living on. They just can't do that anymore. They've been crowded out, and so they leave. They many of I mean thousands of them. In some cases, over half of, of of a county's population is gone within just just a few years. So there's this mass. Out migration of rural people um, leaving the region to go find work in places like Illinois, um, um, you know, St. Louis area, uh, out, out west in California, up in Washington state, up in Michigan and Detroit. And so, so they're leaving. And, and within the region, they're leaving to, they're headed to uh, larger towns and cities like Little Rock or Springfield, Missouri, or places like that. So, and, and, in their place, we have uh, a kind of a new economy begin to be developed here. So there's almost a consensus between conservatives and liberals that, um, well, what we need to help solve the rural poverty question is business. Right? We need we need to attract business. We need to attract mm-hmm. manufacturing, and and uh, and that will that will create jobs they argue so of course they have different approaches for how to do that obviously but they're really of the same mind we need business uh to yeah. do that and so uh so many of these liberal programs uh, in in under in Kennedy John F Kennedy administration and then Lyndon Johnson administration are designed to try to do that these kind of economic development projects that are intended to you know kind of pump money into local economies to try to lure in um uh uh investments and, and and create jobs and all that stuff and and uh, so a new co- new economy is forming but again it's always uh, almost always it's it's light industry low wage non-union uh type of work it is uh kind of a tourism economy that tends to be seasonal and so it's very again low wage type of uh, mm-hmm. jobs created in that um the real estate business is pretty big in this time because there's so many people leaving, a lot of real estate to be sold, and new people starting to come in, uh, oftentimes from the urban and suburban Midwest, uh, many of them retirees. They've worked their lives. Uh, they've got a pension and Social Security. They come to retire in a in a place that's uh, relatively cheap to live. And so you've got all that going on. You've, so you've got a new uh, – really a really a new Ozarks that's being created there. And I argue in the book that that's really where – uh, you start to see this conservative turn uh taking place um and and replacing the old the old uh more pro government populist culture that had existed before and yeah, many of those people are gone and uh and, and and uh you have this alliance sort of forming now between the local business elites those are doing quite well larger landowners um you know uh, the owners of these new local businesses, manufacturing lot manufacturing plants and places like that, things like that. Insurance agents, things like that, and then uh, these new midwestern retirees who uh, many of them will just say it. I mean, they'll come out and say it. Oh, I left Chicago because I was, you know, uh, uh, sick and tired of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, who my new neighbors were. Right. So with the yeah uh, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. You know, so, so this this, this racial uh, animosity mm-hmm. that they bring with them from from urban areas. And so I'm going to leave and go to rural areas. So anyway, you've got this this combination, this alliance uh, taking shape there that kind of creates this new uh, kind of conservative political culture. And your question was about the war on poverty, you know, when uh, the Lyndon Johnson administration mm-hmm. again, another effort to try to, I think, a well-intentioned effort to try to uh, help bring rural people and urban people, but uh, rural people in the case of the Ozarks uh, out of poverty. And and, uh, there were some well-intentioned programs, but these, but these, uh, you know, these local business elites and so forth uh, resist that at every turn. They're proud to have the money if they can control it, Mm -hmm. the federal money. But the minute they realize that they may not be able to control it, maybe not the way they want to, uh, they start crying afoul, you know, uh, big government uh, invading us and and, uh, government overreach and things like that. And so uh, that's Mm -hmm. really the – that kind of defiance that I described in the last part of the book is more akin to, again, the conservative political culture that's that's so dominant in the region today.
1: Yeah, some of what you were talking about just a moment ago sounds um, similar to me, and and I'm not a historian – but of uh, people I know in who live in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. And very similar situations where the, the businesses come in. Most of the people that live there, I mean, people will talk about, um, you know, it's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful love to travel. But for people I know that live there, you know, they don't make a lot of money. It's mostly the tourism things that come through and everybody has low wages, um, uh, I was living there for a while, you know, and a friend of mine who moved from Atlanta up there said that, you know, she asked somebody once, uh, and of course, they you know, there's the, the moneyed elite, and there are the people coming there in droves to buy retirement homes. Sure. For the same reason, you know, but it's the, we call it the lack of cultural diversity. You know, so uh, they, they want to live in a place like that, so there are places for wealthy people to come and move and buy houses, and you know, it's like my mother asked me something about the uh, Biltmore Hotel. You go to the Biltmore while you're there. I said, most of the people I know who work with up there can't afford it. You, you can work at the Biltmore, but you probably can't afford to go there Right. if yeah. you live right. there. You know, so Unless yeah. you're working there, you know, then no, you're not going to really see the Biltmore. But the same situation. Uh, one woman told me... Um, up there she said, Yeah, it's all breweries and hotels so you gotta either make learn how to make beer or make beds And yeah. uh another another Atlanta friend that moved up there she said she was talking to somebody once she's a she's a bartender and the she said, Why do they keep wages so low up here? He goes, Well if people want to move here they'll put up with it yeah. You know and it was yeah. like just very obvious <laughs> you know, no apology, yeah. no no feeling of guilt. Like oh well they'll, they'll do it. if they want to live here, yeah. it's beautiful, they'll put up with it
0: yeah yeah uh and the last my conclusion conclusion of the book i talk about uh the rise of the tea party in the ozarks and and what i found is rather remarkable um one of the uh strongest uh kind of local groups of the tea party uh emerged in mountain home arkansas and it is mountain home was one of these towns that was just uh really revolutionized because it sits basically right between Two of these giant hydroelectric dams and lakes that the New Deal created, and it's just the irony is just amazing, um, you know, <laughs> that, that, because it brought in brought in all of these you know retirees from you know Chicago and other places that have come in, and and uh, other other Midwestern uh, wealthier maybe, uh, Midwesterners who are investing in the local economy, buying up all the real estate and the you know, issues at hotels and the kind of the, the tourism industry there. And uh, and yet, so they're they're uh, staunchly anti-government, and yet they're right there in the shadow of this these these multi-million-dollar, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, mm-hmm. federal federal projects that really makes their their whole their, their lives possible and their and their uh, and their business enterprises uh, possible and so forth. It wouldn't be there, you know, if it, if it weren't for um, the New Deal uh, back in the '30s and '40s. So, yeah, the, the irony is. Uh, pretty
1: amazing, yeah, seriously, so you were you know as you said, you uh grew up in rural Arkansas, you grew up on a farm, and um I know um you yeah, know wanted to ask you how that influences some of your insights, the way you approach the book, but I would imagine though some of the characters that I've read about in here, especially back uh, um maybe around the turn of the century, the 19th or the 20th century. I imagine you've heard about a lot of these people, almost like um, uh, folk heroes growing up. And maybe you, I wonder if some of the stories that you heard about and read, if some, if any of uh, the stories changed quite a bit when she began to research.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah, several of these uh, these uh, uh, people and incidents uh uh I, I first came across on in kind of local historical journals and kind of which which tend to be more kind of folklore oriented often and uh so yeah some of the stories were uh yeah pretty uh well one uh, one of the moonshiner stories there uh tend to be uh portrayed as uh, all this uh, good for him good you know good for him for standing up against the feds and all that stuff and and uh, but yeah that's once you once you dig into the actual- and do the actual research and what was actually going on uh it, it completely changed the the dynamics of the story um so yeah that's one thing other thing I talk about in the book is how memory and um these these stereotypes and these uh our assumptions about rural people. I think have have changed and and they've been kind of created. Uh, I, mean, I mean, nobody talks about draft resistance during World War One, you know, in the Ozarks. That's oh, I know. No, nobody wants to talk about that. You know, that's something we just we no scrub idea. clean and for, for, forget about that. You know, and uh, nobody wants to t- to remember that there was an active uh, socialist uh, movement in the in the rural Ozarks. And and so, yeah, I mean you know these these legends and myths are constructed and uh, and they often serve a purpose right? you know they, they serve a a purpose for their creators and so um, those memories of draft resistance and and uh socialist and populist politics earlier don't really serve that purpose um, so yeah so yeah I mean, it's, <laughs> so the so some of these stories did change uh, quite a bit as I began to peel back the layers and actually do the research. I gotta on.
1: admit, some of the the way you wrote so many of the stories, I, I felt like I was watching a, a movie or a TV show or something, and I'm like pulling from one side over the other. Not like it's gonna make any difference. The story's what it is. It's history, but <laughs> but you wrote it, you made me feel like I was there, and I'm watching them hiding out in the in the trees and the gun, and who gets their arm blown there.
0: I think that is a I a big compliment because you know as historians we, we sometimes struggle with that. You know we we, we have to stick to our facts. Uh, Stick to the sources. We don't have the the license that a novelist has, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I, I wanted to write this in a way that uh, uh, you know, non-expert, uh, maybe uh, who'd never heard of any of this stuff, could could get could could not only be informed but also entertained uh by some of the stories. And I hope I succeeded in in doing that.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, you definitely did, and, uh, and and that's pretty good. That's where I tell people. You know, um, history buff and then some history clubs that, uh, you know, uh, that I really enjoyed. I said, look, the right historians, there is nothing dull about this. There is nothing brand new about some of it, but some of it is it, it's not dull at all. Yeah, you wrote it very, you you really took me there. Like it was, it was uh, almost cinematic. So that was. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> very exciting, too. So. Uh, and so, yes, if you heard me, yes, somebody did get their arm blown off. Uh, and so, and that's just one story, man. You really see it. It's like you see it happen because you talk about, well, it's hanging on, and they pull it, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, this is a movie. This is a movie in a book, uh, or several, anyway. So if you've, uh, if you've listened tonight, my guest has been Jay Blake Perkins. He's the assistant, um, and tell me if, if I'm wrong, if you got, uh, there's an update on this, assistant pr- professor of history at Williams Baptist College. Uh, yeah, right. He's a right. native of the Arkansas Ozarks And his book Hillbilly Hell" raises Federal Power And Populist Defiance in the Ozarks Is published by the University of Illinois Press You can get it uh, from them You can get it from Amazon From Barnes and Noble Any good bookseller uh, Go to your favorite bookstore If they don't have it Ask them to order it Isn't that right, Blake?
0: Yeah, yeah By all means,
1: yes Because <laughs> yeah. believe me This book, somebody had already messaged me um, earlier saying, have you read this book? You know, yeah. He goes, this is pretty heavy stuff. I said, I know, I know, (laughs) but it's fascinating. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Blake, I wish you much success with the book. And so what is your next book going to be? What have we got coming up soon?
0: Well, uh that's a good question. I have got several little smaller projects uh on the table right now. I'm actually editing a reprint of a 1941 book um called uh Yesterday Today Life in the Ozarks and uh this was a it's 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 interesting uh fascinating. The author was a uh a social worker in, in the uh in the Ozarks during the Great Depression. And so she's writing about the rural poverty that she saw and, and uh it's very it's a very different kind of book than you would have found on the Ozarks in the nineteen thirties or forties. Most of those were again real folklore oriented. They were uh kind of kind of portraying this romantic image of the backwoods uh uh Ozarker, uh lucky lucky him and that, you know, they don't have the trappings of modern America and they can you kinda know, live out lives of isolated existence and carefree existence and so forth but anyway she's she's kind of pushing not not kind of she is pushing back against that and (laughs) actually bringing to right to life the actual poverty that that was was very rampant and so anyway i've had a lot of fun with that and it'll probably be out maybe within the next year or so
1: oh good Uh, all right i hope you'll come back yeah.
0: yeah okay yeah i'll be glad to yeah
1: all right, that will be great. Thank you so much. Again, J. Blake Perkins, Hillbilly Hellraisers, and uh, Federal Power and Populist Defiance in the Ozarks. This book, it does. A lot of it is it's, it's history. It's not at all like what you, whatever you thought you knew or heard or read or whatever as what has been portrayed to you. And it's not necessarily the way it was. There's a lot of surprises, and I said there's a lot of things written in a very entertaining cinematic form. So I urge everybody, get this book. And uh, J. Blake Perkins, thank you for being so generous with your time tonight and coming here to Madam Perry's salon. And I hope that you will return and uh, have a great week. And by the way, folks, if this weekend, if you listen live, this weekend, I'm going to be at in Tucson at Wild Wild West Con. Do you know what Wild Wild West Con is, Blake? No, I don't. No, I don't. Okay, um, I've been invited out there to do a presentation on how to uh, start a podcast, and also how to for authors on how to promote books because I'm an entertainment publicist. But uh, Wild Wild WestCon, but but I can't call it how to start a podcast, Blake. I have to call it something like harling, har, um, harnessing wireless telegraphy uh, for entertainment because it Wild Wild WestCon is a Western steampunk convention. Are you familiar with steampunk? Oh, okay. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah all right. Yeah, yeah and ah, it takes I'll place look in the that old up,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, do this one takes place in the old Tucson uh studios. It was a movie theater, I mean uh
0: where oh, movies were made.
1: Yeah. yeah, but now it's a um now it's an a, a amusement park or entertainment, so uh, that's where the uh, Wild Wild West Con is held every year. This year's theme is Robots versus Dinosaur. I've never been to one, huh. and I'm excited about it. So uh, I bet sounds, sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I'll be. All right, folks. Thanks again, and don't forget to get Jay Blake Perkins books. And uh, you know what I always tell you: everybody's got the swing. Thank you, Blake.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, when you were the nappy kid,
1: swinging everything you did, you jump and jive and pop and sing, and everybody's got the swing. But Mom and Pop were right on time. They helped up all your nursery rhymes. When you started off, you dream of a time that you'd have